Hi, friends. Welcome back to Nate Talks to His Friends About Jesus. Happy May to you. Springtime? Dude, summer is coming. Hey, come over to my house. We'll have a barbecue, grill up some smash burgers, put our bare feet in the grass, and my daughter, she'll make some great cookies. Oh, man, summer is coming. I hope you're so good. Hey, like always, I, I know this is the garage band of podcasts, the Come Follow Me podcast, but if this is good for your life, if talking about Jesus is helpful for you, like share this with somebody you love. Let's just spread love of Jesus Christ bit by bit. All right? All right. Now, today we're going to talk about Doctrine and Covenants sections 46 through 48. And, and in there, like as I was reading this, it just made me think like, I want to be happy. Like, I'm really curious about how to be happy. And I think there are other people that, that are also out there that, that want to be happy. At least, like, when I'm watching t- television after my kids go to bed, the commercials and ads I see, they tell me that people want to be happy. So, how, how does someone become happy? Well, first, there's a difference between bliss and contentment or happy fulfillment. What most of the ads I see capitalize on is our endocrine system. See, there's a proven methodology to release dopamine into our system, and that's going to flood us with a temporary feeling of well-being and happiness, bliss, if you will. You've experienced it. It's not a mystery. When you get new shoes, you feel good. You feel special. You may not say, Mom, look how fast I can run in my new shoes, but maybe you should because it's fun. But you still feel that same way. You feel good. You feel fast. You feel awesome. The same thing goes for cars, phones, nice meals, and vacations. But the problem is that these, uh, these new things, they hit the, the same sort of area, the same path in your brain that, that like drugs hit. And therefore, the, the high, the bliss, the dopamine is never permanent. There's a phrase for this in the study of the brain. It's called hedonic adaptation. And that phrase simply means that your brain can adapt to new states, whether they're positive or negative. Uh, Like I've seen this with high school kids who get a new phone. Like the day they get a new phone, they are like Gollum and the ring. They're straight up looking at it, polishing it, loving it. My precious, right? But in a couple of weeks, it's just a phone, I love getting new things. Like, just ask my wife. I'm all about internet shopping. Yeah. But I know it for what it is. It's something nice, but it's temporary. Uh, other people make the argument that you need to focus on you in order to be happy. Like, I saw another advertisement the other day where Carrie Underwood um, was just talking about the importance of choosing herself over other things. Now, I get where she's coming from, and trust me, I I think it's super valuable to work out, eat right, and take care of yourself. However, I think this attitude of taking care of yourself over other things in order for you to be happy, I think it's kind of a slip and slide sometimes. Like, it's not too far off from the look out for number one attitude. That's just completely selfish in me first. Now, this sort of selfishness, me-first attitude comes natural to us. Like, it's part of our fallen nature. You can see it everywhere from the first grade playground swing monopolization, you just take it over and keep it, to greedy adults who, who focus on their enjoyment and their increase at the cost of anything and everything else. But but this is not necessarily a, a modern thought. It's not new to our society or our civilization. 
Uh, like uh, this idea has been espoused as as one of the ways to enlightenment in the past. Like look out for yourself. Like Hindus have believed for centuries that one of the ways to a, a higher level is to remove yourself from family, from friends, from familiar places and possessions, and just focus on you. Live an aesthetic life focused on your enlightenment. Uh, but it's not just uh, Hindus that have done this. Christianity has also for centuries espoused a path of monastic isolation to focus on prayer, study, service, and, and eventual salvation on this individual level. And this sort of idea in Christianity came about originally by a guy named Anthony. He, he grows up in Egypt. He's the child of well-to-do parents, but his parents die when he was 20 and he reads a sermon by Jesus commanding the rich young ruler that if he wanted to be perfect, he needed to sell all that he had and go follow Jesus. So this dude does it like he is obedient. He gives up his lands to his fellow villagers, sold all his other property, donated all his money to the poor, and began to live on one meal a day, sleep on the bare ground. But this wasn't enough, so eventually he moved into an abandoned fort where he lived 20 years without seeing another human face. People would just throw food over the wall. <laughs> Tell me that's not a funny image, man. That's kind of weird, dude. And now it is a great feat of self-denial that Anthony goes through. But I can't help but think that that so much focus on yourself is really not denial, but rather selfishness. See, I really think it's Carrie Underwood's message cranked up to 11. It's what Henry David Thoreau talked about. It's his message to the extreme. And this is, this is a wrestle that people go through. Like, how do I be happy? Do I just focus on me? Like, there's a guy who wrestled with this profoundly. His name's Siddhartha Gatma, Gatama. Sorry, I botched that. He lives about 560 years before the birth of Jesus Christ, and he is reared in the lap of luxury. Like, the dude has three different palaces, one for winter, one for summer, and one for the rainy season. Dude, I'm going to have that. I'm going to have, like, winter house in the Caribbean, maybe Mexico, Costa Rica, I don't know, but it's going to be warm. Summer house, I don't know, like, up in the pines, right? And I don't know, rainy season, I don't know if that's a thing in my life. But anyways... So um, Siddhartha, when he's born, some Hindu priests go to his dad, who, who's the monarch, and they predict that if Siddhartha sees four signs, he would leave home and he would search for truth. And the signs aren't that profound. They're pretty simple. The four signs are if he sees an old man, a sick man, a corpse, or a beggar, and a beggar, sorry, um, then he would leave home and, and seek after enlightenment. And so Siddhartha's father's having none of this. He's determined to prevent his son from seeing these things because he wanted his son to become a great monarch and a great ruler. So he created a very secluded life. Uh, Like, uh, I don't know if you know this, it's like the Truman Show when Jim Carrey is in it. It's like that very controlled, very secluded. In fact, um, spoiler alert, the Truman Show, if you want like Siddhartha's life, it's right there. It's like kind of an archetype, okay? But... By the time that Siddhartha is 29 years old, he, he's really bored. He's, he's very dissatisfied with all this stuff, stuff, all this attention, all this self-focus that's supposed to make him happy. Like the indulgence, the comfort, the opulence, it's just, it's not fulfilling. 
So he decides to venture out into the world. And as he does, his dad makes sure that he controls everything that he sees. Like the city is cleaned and decorated, all the crippled and aged and sick are removed from the streets. It's like, I don't know, the Nazis when they have the Olympics. All the beggars were gone. But he didn't succeed. There's some people that that, um, slid through. As Siddhartha rides about in his chariot, he, he sees a number of things that disturbs him. Like the first thing he sees is an old man with white hair, no teeth, deeply sunken cheeks, wrinkled skin, and a, a bent back and protruding ribs. He had never seen an elderly person. Like his dad had gotten removed his grandparents from him once they started to get old, right? Like when you say the puppy is living on a farm now, right? Like he asked the charioteer what he's seen. What is this? Then he saw another sick person who's so weak that he couldn't stand but rather rolled around on the ground in pain. And he is just flabbergasted by this behavior. Then he sees a dead body being carried on a rack. And prior to this, he knows nothing about death. And finally, he encounters a a, a group of mendicant or begging Hindu monks seeking enlightenment through self-denial. And this, this just rocks his world. Provide some deep introspection about his pursuit of happiness through possessions and a good life and um, just just the most comfortable things. And so finally he decides to go out and seek enlightenment. So he sneaks out in the middle of the night and he searches for the answers to the misery of life, the answers for the, the misery that you see in this fallen world. So... Shortly after he he sneaks out and leaves, he runs into five aesthetics, five guys who are using self-denial to find this happiness, this enlightenment, this profound peace. And um, so so he lives the next six years with them in in this kind of extreme self-denial. He says during this period, he says, I live to torment and torture my body. A tradition says he lived on one bean or one sesame street or seed or one grain of rice a day. But after an extended period of fasting, he, he arrived at a paradox. He, he, he arrived at the idea that he desired freedom and enlightenment from desire, but he was so obsessed with self-denial that that's a form of desire. Like he, he didn't know how to get free. He realized that he was so near death because of his extreme fasting that if he died, he would die not obtaining enlightenment from this. His extremism was getting in the way of achieving this enlightenment. But if he ate, he would be going against the aesthetic discipline. And at the middle of this, uh, a local woman offers him a bowl of rice cooked in milk, and it's a turning point from him. He eats it. But because he does, his five friends leave him, disappointed because he's abandoned this aesthetic lifestyle, this focus on you lifestyle. So after this, he, he sits under a Bodhi tree, which is a sweet um, name and a great rapper, by the way, Bodhi. This is Bodhi. And he makes a vow under this Bodhi tree. He decides that he would not move from that spot until he gets enlightenment. He's like, I need this. So over the next few hours, this is kind of his trial period. He's buffeted by natural elements and by a demonic spirit. But in the end, he realizes the path to enlightenment. And 
Um, he, what he learns is called the Four Noble Truths. And we, we can talk about this another time, uh, and we will because it's fun. But because of this experience, Siddhartha is, begin, uh, is called the Buddha, which means one who is awake. That's a cool title. One who is awake. I want that. That's cool. Or the awakened one. And sometime after this, he runs into his five aesthetic friends and they're like, oh, it's Sid. And he speaks to them in a place called Deer Park. And these five like automatically realize that he had attained enlightenment. And so they become his first true disciples. As he talks to them, it, it kind of sets up uh, his future uh, teachings. And, and it is a, a turning point again in his life, another turning point. Because like what Hindu tradition would have said is that after enlightenment, he should have lived his life in seclusion. But after seeing how his five friends react to his teachings, he decided instead to break that mold and spend his life traveling about and preaching and helping others. Now, where, where am I going with this story? Well, I think this story hits on an important thing, an important point. And this is the point. There is no such thing as salvation in isolation. And I would submit to you, there's no such thing as enlightenment, happiness, um, contentment in isolation. There's no individual salvation. Salvation is a communal thing. In the Old Testament, salvation was a family affair with the family of Adam or the family of Abraham or even Enoch. Even though Enoch is a shy, soft-spoken guy, God doesn't say, oh, I get it. You just do you. You focus on building yourself right now. No, he says, Enoch, go forth and do as I have commanded thee. And no man shall pierce thee. Open thy mouth and it shall be filled. And I'll give thee utterance. For all flesh is in my hands and I will do as seemeth me good. Say unto this people, choose ye this day to serve the Lord God who made you. And so he does. He doesn't just do him. He doesn't just focus on himself. He gets out there and he helps other people. And because he's able, he, because he does this, he's able to build a community with God, a community that is one heart, one mind, and dwelt in righteousness, and there's no poor among them. They are Zion, and Zion is taken up to heaven. That is what heaven is. That, that society is Joseph's model that he's using again and again in the Doctrine and Covenants. When Jesus is about to leave the earth, his final prayer is not a commission for his disciples to work on themselves and to create a system of self-improvement. Instead, he says, neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they may all be one, even as thou, Father, and in our art in me, sorry, I'm stumbling over that a little bit, and I in thee that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me and the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one. Like he's just saying salvation, happiness, contentment, enlightenment, it comes as a group. You see this in the Book of Mormon too, Alma chapter four. It came to pass that Alma, 
having seen the afflictions of the humble followers of God and the persecutions which were heaped upon them by the remainder of his people, and seeing the inequality began to be very sorrowful, nevertheless the Spirit of the Lord did not fail him. And he selected a wise man who was among the rulers of the church and gave him power, according to the voice of the people, that he might have power to enact laws according to the laws which had been given, and put them in force according to the wicked crimes of the people. And this he did that he himself might go forth among his people or among the people of Nephi, that he might preach the word of God unto them to stir them up to a remembrance of their duty. Like the message over and over is get out and do good. Like stop thinking about yourself. Here's the thing. Like we want to know how to be happy. Uh, Like I know this sounds contrarian, but like we think way too much about us being happy. Like the thing is, people who are happy actually don't think about being happy. Jesus really means it when he says, forget yourself, right? Like take no thought, like straight up. And some of you are like, I don't know how to do that. I'm telling you, this is how you do it. Like get out and do good. And I know they're like, I know I should do more service. No, stop this. Like don't even think about it. Like just go out there and build somebody up. Like our doctrine of families whispers at this. Salvation comes as a unit, as a family of God. Again, there's just no such thing as individual salvation here. God, in fact, God built us for codependence. Like that's how we are created as beings here. And this brings us finally to the message of Doctrine and Covenants 46. And you're like, I know, dang, that was a long intro. But just check it out what, what God says here. Verse 11. For all have not every gift given unto them, for there are many gifts, and to every man is given a gift by the Spirit of God. To some is given one, and to some is given another, that all may be profited thereby. Are you you following what he's saying there? Purposely, deliberately, God did not give every gift to every person. He gave some gifts to one person, and other gifts to another person in order to have these people cooperate and work together because that is what happiness is. That is what Zion is. The, the idea is that when we each perform our role well, then the outcome is awesome. It's kind of like rugby. I, I don't know if you've ever watched rugby, but it's cool. Heck, in my opinion, any sport where people are hitting each other and battling for the win, I'm going to be there. Anyway, in rugby, there's this thing called a scrum. It's where they crouch down and they form like that crab-looking formation and push each other forward trying to recover the ball. Well, in a scrum, each person has a specific duty. And they have certain like natural characteristics that make them a good fit for that position. And they train for and develop that. So let's start right up front, right in the middle. Right there, you put a big old oak tree of a man. He's called a hooker. I know, it's a terrible title for us Americans, but he's called that because he hooks both arms around the two men uh, to each of his sides called props. And then they line up in the, the scrum. And then the, 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 the hooker also then is the one that is in charge of hooking the ball and pushing it back through this crab-like formation. Now to the side, we have props. And that's what you would think. They prop up, right? 
And these guys need to be extremely strong in their neck and their shoulders, their upper body and their legs. And they need to just relish putting their heads against somebody else and just pushing kind of like a bull or like my six-year-old. And, and so like, like basically like they, they just push forward. And then behind this row of three, there's a, a row of two locks. And their job is to lock the scrum in place. They're kind of the engine room of the scrum. And then you have two flankers, and these guys need to be just excellent at everything with inexhaustible energy. And finally, you have the scrum half. The halfback is the guy that picks up the ball after coming out of the tunnel. Dude, this guy needs to be quick, okay, and a great passer with great reaction time. And so because they need to be quick, they're usually smaller players here, okay? So you can kind of see there's these different strengths and different characteristics. If your whole team is nothing but props, you would be lumbering and slow and the halfbacks on the other team would just blaze by you. On the other side, on the other hand, if your team is nothing but halfbacks, you would just get wrecked by these oak tree men. You would just get broken. Like Tom Brady is good. But if Tom Brady is playing right tackle, you would get destroyed. So in order to help us create Zion, in order to create heaven, in order to create happiness, God has given us complementary gifts. You see this outlined in Doctrine and Covenants 46, these gifts meant to work together. To some is given the gift of the Holy Ghost to know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and was crucified for the world. Like some people just have a testimony in them. Like that's it. It's just growing in their soul and it's just how it is. To others is given to believe on their words. So complimentary gifts, you see that there, right? That they may have eternal life and continue faithful. So some just know and some believe on those that know. Both are good. And there's not one that's better than the other. Others, it says, you given the gift to, to know the differences of administration, right? Um, and then in verse 16, you're given the diversity of operations. So administration and operations are meant to be working together, Right? You have the word of wisdom and the word of knowledge to be complementary, the faith to be healed and the faith to heal. Then you have the, the gift of working miracles. And this one seems to be a lone ranger, but you can't necessarily work a miracle on yourself. It's to work miracles for others. So it, by nature, it's complementary. To some, it is given the gift of prophecy and the others of discerning that prophecy, right? To some, to speak with tongues and some to interpret tongues. And all these gifts come from God for the benefit of the children of God. That unto some it may be given to have all those gifts that there may be a head in order that every member may be profited thereby. So, so follow what he's saying. For the benefit of the children of God, that every member may be profited thereby. That's big. Paul talks about this exact same things. He says, you are all part of the body of Jesus Christ. And just like a body has lots of different parts, the body of Christ has lots of different members with lots of different gifts. It's ridiculous for the foot to say, since I'm not the hand, I'm not the body. Dumb. Have you ever stubbed your toe or had to be on crutches for a while? No foot. You are important. Let me tell you from firsthand witness. Or what if the ear said, because I'm not the eye, because I don't get to see things, I'm out. What a stupid phrase. Paul is saying that's nonsense. We need seeing, hearing, smelling. 
But now that now hath God set, God hath set the members, every one of them in the body, as it hath pleased him. God has put you where you needed to be in the best possible way. And if they were all one member, if they're all hands, if they're all feet, that would first of all be creepy, uh, a body of eyeballs. I don't know how that would work because it sounds weird. Where is the body? Now, ye are the body of Christ and the members in particular. Happiness and fulfillment aren't found in finding your bliss, finding your, your, your purpose of a perfect job. It's learning what God-given roles he has in store for you, what talents you have, and then knocking them out of the park. This is going to give you identity, purpose, direction, and fulfillment. You, you really just have two jobs here, right? To love God and to love others. That's it. And God has given you some really great gifts to carry those two roles out. That is your calling, period. Now, now, don't think that I'm not ignorant to, to this. I know that working with other people, like I'm saying is essential, is sometimes painful. Like sometimes it's anywhere from, if we're talking about a body, it's like equivalent to a nagging canker sore that makes it painful to swallow or to like straight up getting kicked in the shins with steel-toed boots. And like we see this in church history in these sections. For example, when he's a missionary, John Murdoch and his companions are preaching in Cleveland. Cleveland! Well, then um, they have somebody come forward and kneel, uh, kneel down as if they were going to pray. But instead of praying, this is actually the, a coordinated sign with his uh, arrest of his punk friends. And John says, quote, a sign to the banditry to begin their abuse. And, and immediately all his friends like blow out the candles, throw ink stands and books. Like ink stands would hurt you if you get hit with that thick glass right there and, and hurl abuse and books at the speaker. They're just punks. So, so some people at around this same time are like, oh, maybe not everybody should be a member of the body of the Christ. Uh, maybe they should just get booted out. But God says, um, again, I say unto you, you shall not cast any out of your sacrament meetings who are earnestly seeking the kingdom. Or what about sometimes uh, as you are a member of the body of Christ, you are not going to be jazzed about the a calling you get. Because maybe you're like, uh, this is not fun. Or maybe it's not an even official church calling. Maybe you're just not jazzed at the, the cards you've been dealt in life in general. Right? For example, th this is not new. In early March 1831, Joseph asks John Whitmer to take over as church historian. Joseph himself is really not naturally disposed to keeping a journal and a history himself. We see from these early records. And Oliver has been doing a great job at it, but he is left for his mission to the Lamanites. And so Joseph approaches John and asks him if he will take the calling to keep a record for the church. And John's response really is my response if someone were to ask me to keep a journal for a calling. He says, quote, I would rather not do it, end quote. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a nightmare to me. Or, or what if you're asked to sacrifice time or possessions like the Kirtland Saints were uh, as new friends slash refugees show up from New York? Right, 48 verse 2, Inasmuch as ye have lands, ye shall impart them to the eastern brethren. Like, if this happens, if you're put in a situation 
that that is you're you're dealing with punks and dealing with other people and it's difficult or or it's just something that you're just not that excited about um or, or if you're really asked to sacrifice and it's hard like i want to invite you to follow the example of these early saints john whitmer says i would rather not but he goes on to say but if god asks i will do it god does ask so john becomes a record keeper and then asking to sacrifice, well, Lehman Copley has a considerable tract of land. And so he offers to let the brethren uh, from New York occupy it. And since he was asked, he imparts. And something happens when we are just willing to do our little part in our own way. Elder Uchtdorf says it this way. He says, some years ago in our meeting house in, in Darmstadt, again, sorry, German speakers, Germany, Uh, A group of brethren were asked to move a grand piano from the chapel to an adjoining cultural hall where it was needed for a musical event. None were professional movers, and the task of getting that gravity-friendly, isn't that a great description, instrument, through the chapel and into the cultural hall seemed nearly impossible. Everybody knew that the task required not only physical strength, but also careful coordination. There were plenty of ideas but not one uh, could keep the piano balanced correctly. They repositioned the brethren by strength, height, and age over and over again, but nothing worked. As they stood around the piano, uncertain of what to do next, a good friend of mine, Brother Hanno Lucian, spoke up. He said, Brethren, stand close together and lift where you stand. It seemed too simple. Nevertheless, each lifted where he stood and the piano rose from the ground and moved into the cultural hall as if on its own power. That was the answer to the challenge. They merely needed to stand close together and lift where they stood. That's interesting, right? Stand close together and lift where you stand. Stop wanting something else in your life. Just be where you are right now and lift. And if you do, the, the, the point of this parable that Uchtdorf is sharing, President Uchtdorf is sharing, is that power, Christ's grace, flows into our lives in that moment that we embrace that. And we actually become happier. President Monson tells the story this way. He says, when I was a kid, we undertook a project to save our nickels and dimes for what was to be a gigantic Christmas party. Sister Gertz kept careful record of our progress. As boys with typical appetites, we converted in our minds the monetary totals to cakes, cookies, and pies and ice cream. This was to be a glorious event. Never before had any of our teachers even suggested a social event like this was to be. The summer months faded into autumn, autumn turned to winter, and our party goal had, to be, uh, had been achieved. The class had grown, a good spirit prevailed, And then none of us will forget that gray morning when our beloved teacher announced to us that the mother of one of our classmates, and he's talking about Sunday school here, had passed away. We we thought uh, of all our own mothers and how they meant to us, and we felt sincere sorrow for Billy Davenport and his great loss. The lesson this Sunday was from the book of Acts, chapter 20, verse 35. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. At the conclusion of the presentation of a well-prepared lesson, Lucy Gertz commented on the economic situation of Billy's family. These were depression times, 
and money was scarce. With a twinkle in her eyes, she asked, How would you like to follow this teaching of our Lord? How would you feel about taking our party fund and as a class giving it to the Davenports as an expression of our love? The decision was unanimous. We counted so carefully each penny and placed the total sum in a large envelope. A beautiful card was purchased and inscribed with our names. This simple act of kindness welded us together as one. And more than that, let me tell you, more than that, one of the things um, that Jesus loves most about being him is the thrill of being able to give unexpected grace. You want to feel as he feels? Then start letting grace flow into your life. Be a graceful person in how you give and it will, it will shock you the goodness that will begin to flow in. Here's just another example of this. During the, the 150th anniversary of the pioneers' arrival at the Salt Lake Valley, Brother Myron Richens was serving as a Salt Lake as, as a stake president in Hennifer, Utah. And so the, the celebration uh, is going to include a reenactment of the pioneers' passage through his town of Hennifer. So President Richen is it was heavily involved, heavily involved in the plans for a celebration. Uh, and he attended many meetings with general authorities and others to discuss the events, and he was fully engaged. But just before the actual celebration, President Richen's stake was reorganized, and he was released as president. On a subsequent Sunday, he was attending his ward's priesthood meetings when the leaders asked for volunteers to help with the celebration. President Richens, along with others, raised their hands and was given instructions to dress in work clothes and bring his truck and a shovel. And on the morning of the big event, you, President Richens um, reported for volunteer duty. A few weeks before, he had been an influential contributor to the planning and supervision of this major event. On that day, however, his job was to follow the horses in the parade and clean up after them. That is what do we do with that, man? I get it. It's easier said than done. But please remember this. When we're asked to give up things, that Jesus gave up his throne, his rightful place as creator and condescended here. When you don't want to do something, remember Jesus begging for this cup to pass from him. When you're struggling with some punk, remember how he has continued to work with some very difficult, stubborn people, including you and a dude named Nate. Now, now don't get what I'm saying, don't mistake what I'm saying here, okay? This is, this is not a rah-rah speech. Jesus did hard things so you can hard things. This is a salvation speech. Jesus did hard things so you can rely on him. He already lived the way you should have lived. So trust him, trust his example, trust his love. Let his tender mercies and uplifting power flow into your life and through you to others. Let it supercharge your efforts at salvation and happiness. Uh, like, l let's even bring it back to the beginning. This is the way to be happy. In fact, it's the only way to be happy. There is no individual salvation. In the name of the one who provides salvation for all, amen.